Ecclesiastes 12. Someone asked me this morning, are we about done? They were joking, I think. Uh, we are. And uh, this is the next to the last message in the installment, uh, The Laboratory of Life. Looking through the eyes of Koaleth, the preacher, most believing it was Solomon. I think this text does as much to tell us it was Solomon as anything we've read. As we went through the what we determined to be chapters, they were not written as a chapter, it was just a, a letter, it was a white paper. Uh, it was an essay, college students, get y'all ready for going back, uh, that Solomon tells us in this text was inspired for him to write. And we have looked at, he began the whole book by saying life is monotonous. Would y'all agree sometimes life's monotonous? That we get in a rut and it seems like there's no purpose, that we just do the same old stuff every day. We get up, we go to work, we get a paycheck, you know, every once in a while we'll venture out and we'll have a vacation and then we start dreading because school's starting back and vacations stop and, and we get ready for the rut and college football gets us through the rut and gets us to Christmas and we make it to the national championship and this is, you know, people who are right with God. Uh, but then college football is over and then we, we have some basketball, but, is, you know, we, we just, same old stuff. We're always looking to next year and the next thing, but... Solomon concludes the book by teaching us life is a gift. That needs to be unwrapped. And we need to remember who the giver of that great gift is. But today, we look in chapter 12, beginning in verse 9, at the fact that life is an education. We need to learn from it. I polled several church members this morning. I said, I asked, I asked their age and all but a few were in their 60s. And I said, what is it that maybe you've learned in all the years of your life, looking back now, if you could go back, what would you change? What would you change it? Every one of them was taken back at the question. When I, when I posed it I, and thought about asking them, I thought, you know, this would be really good. But every one of them said, that's really deep. That's something that you just don't toss out. That's something to really, really think about. But several of them fairly quickly said, well, I know exactly what it is. I said, it can be something you would go back and change and do, or something you would go back and change and not do. Now listen, here were some of the answers that I got this morning. One was, 
I would have a deeper walk with Christ. I said, what does that look like? That, that sounds good to say it. You know, we, we have revivals, we have youth camps, we say, I've rededicated my life, and, and what does that mean? Is that just a coin phrase, something we throw out because we had an emotional event at church or at camp or, you know, at some concert or something? What does that mean to have a deeper walk, to be rededicated? What, what does that look like? They said, well, pray more. I'd get in God's Word and really, really study. I, I've, I've been studying, and uh, last few years I've really been going deeper, and it has is, is so blessed my heart, but I, I, if I could go back, I would have started much sooner. One was a really cool answer. Well, they're all cool, but one said, I'd have been accountable much younger. I would have found me someone like I have now that I would have taught more about my walk with Christ, hearing about their walk from Christ, encouraging, fellowshipping, mentoring, teaching, learning together. That's what I would do. And then I ask one who's lived many years, who has seen a lot of things in this life. And without equivocation, this person immediately said, I would go back and tell my young self, do not be a follower. Do not care what anybody or anything says and teaches that you should do and that you should follow. I would be my own person in Christ and not worry about what the groups are doing, what kind of peer pressure would be coming at. You know one really deep one? Now think about this young people. Oh, I'm in love. <laughs> I want to buy a car that costs about three times what my yearly wage is. I want to buy a house and then I want to take four two-week vacations a year and then I want to have a Christmas for my kids and for my family like you see on a television show and you're swimming in debt and you don't know how to pay your bills, can't tithe, can't do anything else, but you're keeping up. Listen, one person said, I would be much more careful in life-changing decisions. Who I married, what I bought, things that I would do in my life, I'd do, I'd do totally different. I wouldn't worry about what people thought I had or what I should have. I would just be who God intended me to have or be and have what God intended me to have. You know, I've said it before, and I didn't coin the phrase, but someone once said, that half of everybody in the world is looking and working so hard to have what's making the other half miserable. Because we put on a face and when people say, how's it going? This is our answer. Oh man, it's great. Everything's great. It's wonderful. Man, every, 
everything's perfect. Oh, I've got the most beautiful wife, my husband's greatest thing since sliced bread. We've just bought all new vehicles and we're having all this and we're having all this and we're going on this trip, we're going on the cruise and we're going to see this. And then they come back in three months, they're divorced. Really? Things actually wasn't so great. Or they disappear and you see their name in the paper where they filed bankruptcy and they had lost everything. They're in church and they're going and praising the Lord and then the next minute, the CIA couldn't find them. Why is that? It's because we're not learning. Solomon, the wisest man on earth, had the ability, but chose not to exercise it. And listen to what he said in chapter 12. Look at verse 9. And moreover, the preacher was wise. Now, who was it? Was it Samuel Clemens or Walt Whitman said, if, if, uh, if it's the truth, it ain't bragging. Well, we look back over Solomon's life, he wasn't bragging. He was telling the truth. The preacher was wise. He still taught the people knowledge. Yea, he gave good heed and sought out and set in order many proverbs. Now, I'm going to tell you what I take away from this verse. Is that there are lessons in wisdom and order. Look with me, if you will, again in verse 9. Moreover, now, moreover, he's just talked about life as a gift, and he talked about all the things of this world under the sun, uh, that the dust shall return to the earth, uh, and the spirit shall return unto God, and everything that is here on this earth is temporal and it's vanity. It, it, there is no ultimate substance. And so, moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still, now why still? He still taught the people knowledge. I'm going to tell you what I believe it means. It means he still understood that we're always teaching and learning. The people that I polled this morning, by their own admission, said there are things I did wrong in my life. I would go back and change them whether it was relationships, whether it was life-impacting decisions, whether it was friendships and bonds that should have never been there, whatever it was, there are things. And I believe if, there, if everyone here is not willing to admit there's something, even the youngest people, that you had changed, then you've got a self-problem. Because... There's none righteous, no, not one. It's a sad case when we live up to the words of Frank Sinatra and say, you know, I stood strong, I, you know, I, I did it my way. He said regrets, I have a few. But here's the, the latter part of that. He said, but too few to mention. I'm going to tell you, time would not permit the Regrets I have. Solomon said, I have regrets, but the one thing I can still do because of the wisdom, God, it was a God-given gift. 
You understand you're here today because God gifted you. That's the only way you're here today is because God has spoke to you, touched your life, and has allowed you, has permitted you. The sovereign God of the universe has allowed you to be here. You didn't make your life. You don't control your life. And there's nothing you can do about it. Always teaching and learning. He said, I'm going to teach with my words. Words are important. Y'all remember the little jingle when we were kids? And, and it was meant well. You say, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Not true. Not true. The most damaging thing in the world sometimes are words. Think about it. Think about the shaming that goes on today. About anything and everything. Christian shaming. Body shaming. Race shaming. All these other things. Words can be very, very harmful. Or they can be very uplifting. Very uplifting. I'm going to tell you. You know, last week I challenged you to do what? To read or quote or something, Psalm 118.24 every day. And once I challenged you, God said, well, you got to live up to it, big boy. And so I've really tried to do that each, each day. And I'm going to tell you, there were days where throughout the day, every time it would come to my mind, my heart, it was convicting. It was convicting that I had to look at the Lord and say, this is the day you made, not me. We will rejoice. We, who is we? All of God's people rejoicing. Listen, because sometimes my words are not positive. Words that are not exemplary of God's love in my life. Solomon said, I've messed up. It's kind of that do as I say, not as I do. Sometimes there is an application for that. The first church member I ever preached a funeral for, my first pastor, I went to visit him one afternoon, church member and I, and when we left there that day, I told my church member, I said, if something major doesn't happen, that's going to be my first funeral. It's my first year as pastor. And it was just a few short weeks later that I preached this funeral. Later on in that pastorate, I had a church member I told you about that had liver disease and they tried to do a transplant three times and after the third time, he passed away at the age of 47. These two men, 159, 147, had the exact same thing in common. The last time I talked with them, both of them said, Preacher, I need to say out loud, and it's for me, not for you. I need to say out loud, I'm not mad at God. And I want you, when you preach my funeral, to tell my family, do not be mad. Because in some ways, we're looked at as being younger than, you know, we want to be in our 80s and die in our sleep. They said, both these men looked me in the eyes and said, Preacher, listen to me. 
I'm here because of my own actions. The way I lived when I was a teenager, the things that I partook of when I was in my 20s, the crowd I ran with, I allowed them. They didn't make me. I allowed them to be a negative influence in my life. And the things that I partook of, the lifestyle that I lived, has put me where I am at. Teach somebody, don't come here. Don't live like I have lived. Solomon was that man. Would y'all all agree Solomon was pretty sharp? You ever read Proverbs? I mean, most of us can quote something. Remember that whole thing about train up a child? Guess who wrote it? Now, tell me, do you think he applied it in his life? Who is his son? Y'all remember what his son's name was? Huh? Rehoboam. And what happened under Rehoboam? The kingdom split. And all of life that Israel had known went away in a matter. It, listen, we're, we're just, we're not even a full generation. We're just a few short days, a few short weeks, months, a year or two away from everything going south very quickly. Solomon taught, but he did not live it. We must teach with our words, but also with our actions. He says right here, moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still, he's giving an inference that even though he had messed up along the way, he still taught the people knowledge. Yes, he gave good heed. He warned them and he sought out and he set in order many proverbs. And so the end of his life, he tried to say, look, and, and though it's a negative example, it was an example nonetheless. Have you ever had a parent or someone say, you see that person right over there? Don't do what they did. Now there's some people where the example is, hey, that's a great example. Live like them. Follow the Lord, go to church, sing song, good songs, read your Bible, pray, be a person that walks close to the Lord. That's a good example, right? And you need to understand, I'm going to come down here because I need to be on this level too. Everyone in this room is a teacher. You say, I'm single, I don't have any kids. Don't matter. Don't matter. You say, well, I'm not a grandparent, I'm not in education. I'm telling you, if you're not living, at, uh, you know, on naked and afraid, you're not living on an island somewhere playing the game Survivor, which you're not even by yourself then. If you're not Les Stroud, you are not living in a bubble. There's somebody that you work with, there's somebody that lives next door to you. Somebody sees you when you pump gas. Somebody cuts your hair. Somebody waits on you at the grocery store or when you go in and get you a Happy Meal. We need to understand every single one of us teach by example. It's our choice whether we're going to be a good one or a bad one. It's your choice. You can't blame. No one I talked to this morning says, I don't have any regrets because it wasn't my fault. Not one person said that. 
Not one person said, I was in a terrible situation and I blame my mama and my daddy. It was the government's fault. The wrong president was in there. We didn't have the right Supreme Court. I went to bad schools. I lived in a bad part. No one said that. Not one. When it comes to you teaching, the buck stops with you. We teach with our actions. What kind of actions are we teaching? Are we teaching good habits? Are we teaching a dependence on the Lord or dependence on self? Are we teaching them that the world is ours to have? The world's our oyster. Grab the tiger by the tail and all the carpe diems that you can spit at them. Are we teaching them this is the day the Lord has made? And teaching that by our actions. Especially parents of young children. They're in their most formative days of their life. And if we teach them God's important. Unless there's something more important. Do not wonder why your kids quit church and quit God when they're 18, 19, 20 years old. Don't wonder why they don't want to raise their kids around the gospel. We are setting the example in our lives. And Solomon's saying it's not too late. He was an old man here. It's the last thing he wrote, as far as we know, right? I mean, he's already wrote Song of Solomon, he's already wrote Proverbs, but he's an old man here. And he's saying, listen, I'm trying to teach the people knowledge. And he gave good heed. Look in that part, gave good heed. In the Hebrew, it literally means, it's one word for three words. It did not translate or transliterate well from the Hebrew into the English. And so gave good heed literally means to expand or to broaden. It almost gives the whole idea of when Moses wrote the Shema to the Hebrew children in Deuteronomy. Listen to obey. It means to open your ears, to broaden your horizons of learning. Instead of saying, I'm an old dog, can't teach old dogs new tricks. I don't want to hear. I'm just going to go to church, keeps my wife off my back. I don't want to run into the preacher. It's a small town, see him all the time. I don't want him always asking me, where you at? It is understanding there's something in that Sunday school class that God can help me grow and enjoy my life better. There's something, listen, imagine, I almost went into my Rod Serling voice. Imagine if you will. Only a few got that. You're old. You just don't know what you miss for the twilight zone. Imagine. If you had, and maybe you were tempted by something or life's providence, not God's providence, but the world gave you an opportunity to miss today, you would have missed that song. Washed by the blood. Nothing he can't make holy. Do you understand you are in that song? There's nothing outside of God's ability. God is above and beyond 
anything we could ever ask or even imagine. You would have missed it. Maybe there's something in this message that speaks to your heart. The Sunday school, the student ministry, the children, the nursery. He said, I gave good heed. He said, I, I, I was expanding and brought. It means literally to learn with our senses. You ever just sit back and watch? You ever sit back and watch? I saw a thing. I was reading somewhere and I saw a picture of an elderly man and his wife. And I don't know. I don't know. But had pulled into a Sonic and he had ordered and when it came she was such an invalid and though she he had gotten her in the car no doubt whatever she couldn't even really feed herself and so he got out he went around when he got they got their ice cream and he sat down on the rocker panel the edge under the door and he sat there and he put a blanket over and he fed her her ice cream You see, that, that's giving good heed, that's broadening, that's learning. That is the grace of God, learning with our senses. I watched with my eyes and said, you know, that's, that's the pattern I need to follow. Think with me, somebody in this church that has been a great example in your life. That you have learned with your eyes and your ears. See, I, I, I worship today by listening to the songs we sing. I love that, that first song. I can't keep up. I didn't have enough air. But I love it. I remember when it first came. I love that song. I love all of that that praises the name of Jesus. Learning with our ears. How many vacation Bible school workers we have here? Raise your hand. All right, let me ask you something. Does it not blow your mind that those kids can learn all those songs in a week, basically? They don't only learn them, they learn all the choreography. You know? And we just look like we're having a conniption fit as, as adults that's but they will sing them for months, won't they? We learn with our ears. Can I tell you something that, that guilts me? Something I would change? If I could go back to when I was 13, 14 years old, I've always had a pretty good memory for some things. I, I obscure birthdays, phone numbers, things like that. I, I've been called the king of useless trivia. If I could go back, I would take that where I can hear a song from the 1972 and sing it word for word. Some of us we can, we, can, we can sing every Taylor Swift song. We can sing every Katy Perry song. 
We can sing every Eric Smith song. We can sing every Skinner song. But how many verses of God's word can we recite? How many, how many words that are inspired? Not illuminated, not excited words. I mean, there's been some songs that's really cool songs. I mean, really, really deep, great songs. Let, let's, let's take the world songs out of it completely if we think I'm too worldly for that. Let's, let's go to hymn songs. Let's, let's, go, let's go way back. And I'm not talking about 1970s. I'm talking about early 1500s. A mighty fortress is our God. Now, I would venture to say no more than 10 people in this room know who wrote the lyrics to that song. Martin Luther. Early 1500s. It was literally a life-changing song. By his example... And the life that they knew he was living, those words matched. A mighty fortress, a man who had stood at the Diet of Worms and, and over and over and over from Wittenberg to, uh, to the Diet of Worms and everything in between, the, the papacy had done their dead level best to exterminate and extinguish his voice and his witness. And yet, he still died of natural causes. That's the one martyr that Satan didn't get. And he died of natural causes. How? I don't know. But what I do know is those words are very powerful and we can learn from them, but they're not inspired. Nothing Martin Luther, nothing Harry Ironside, nothing Arthur Pink, nothing Warren Wearsby, nothing John Calvin, nothing Joseph Arminius, Nothing from Augustine, nothing, nothing has been inspired except this blessed book. And we'll see in a little bit these words he even said God inspired in my life. We need to learn with our senses. Listen, stop talking and listen. You ever told anybody that? God ever told you? Learn with our eyes. I love to watch people. I love to just sit and watch. I like it when I'm not in such a big rush going to the airport. Timmy's got family here from Hawaii. June, thank you for playing with us this morning. It's a great honor to have you come and do that with us. But it's a pretty good ways from here to Hawaii. And I was joking with one of Timmy and Elena's girls. She said, I've got a cousin here from Hawaii. I said, did they swim all the way? She looked at me real funny. She go through several airports. I would venture to say, got to go through Atlanta, maybe San Francisco or San Diego, somewhere like that, and then on into Hawaii. You'll go through, if you go through Atlanta, you go through LAX or something like that, you will see every strain of people on the earth. But there's still almost nothing like going through Kennedy. 
You go through Kennedy in New York, and I mean, you'll see anything and everything you can imagine. I like to just sit and watch. Last year when we went to Haiti, Emily and I sat, and we had to have a New York bagel. We went and got us a bagel, and we sat there. We had several hours to wait to our flight to Fort Lauderdale, and so we sat there and we just watched. And I, and I would question, I said, Emily, what religion do you think that person is? And she'd say, uh, Muslim. I said, no, that's a Sikh. That, the, the turban, the, the thing they're wearing on their head, they're, they're a Sikh. And I don't know if they got in here in the airport, but it's always believed they keep a special dagger in there. I said, what about that person that have a dot? And what about this person? We would look and we would examine and we would try to learn with our eyes. Listen, we watched our moms, we watched our dads, we watched our preacher, I watched my preacher slap the pulpit so hard he cracked it one time. Don't do this, but I used to sit in the back and we would put check marks for every time he'd go, huh. That's bad, ain't it? And I want to tell you, ha! But you know what? I was listening. And in between me doing that, the power of the gospel sank in and it poured blessed spirit water over my life that had been planted in the Sunday school and on my mom and dad's bed when mom would read those Bible stories to me and, and in vacation Bible school where they would take time with this rowdy little boy. We learn with our eyes, we learn with our ears, with our senses, but then learning from our experiences, we learn with our heart and with our hands. Several said, you know what? I would not have married someone that wasn't right with God. That our relationship, if I had to do all over again, would have been based on, centered on, Jesus Christ and Him alone. We learn, though, through our experiences with our heart, when our heart gets broken. Listen, don't get mad at God. It's not God's fault. We make bad decisions, don't we? Kills me. I've told you, Becky and I were addicted. I mean, addicted to live PD. We, if it's new, we're going to watch live PD. And it always ceases to amaze me. Last night, boy, I wrecked his motorcycle. You know, one thing to drink and drive, but drink and drive on a motorcycle. And then they opened up his cooler. They said, whose cooler is that? That's mine. Open it. Oh, but that's not mine. Your name's on that cooler, and you admit it's your cooler, but that's not in it. That, that it's not yours. No, it's not mine. Really? Really? You see, we learn from our experiences, and we learn that there's some things in our life we don't need to deny. We need to learn from it. Stop living in denial and grow. Learn with our hearts and learn with our hands. He said, I've learned, and so I can teach you. Don't do what I did. Those two men on their deathbed said, Preacher, tell my kids, tell my grandkids, don't do what I did. Let me ask you. When the rich man who had built new barns, tore down old barns, and had a party, died that night and went to hell, what did he want God to send Lazarus back to tell his brothers? Don't do 
what I did. Don't come here. Don't do what I did. Don't do it. And young people, swallow your arrogance and pride and be smart. You want to you be smarter? Well, I can, I can learn for myself. Yeah, you can. But listen, if you really want to be smart, listen and don't do the stupid stuff we did. Amen? It means just a fact. I look back and I think, how much money would I have saved had I not done dumb stuff? Just, just practical, logical stuff. A pile. Just dumb. Dumb. I mean, just dumb. Every time I think I'm smart, God reminds me of something like that. No, you're not that smart. I'm really not that big of a deal. And God reminds me. We learn from our experiences with our heart, but with our hands. When we work and we do and something breaks, you say, hey, what did Edison say? He said, they ask about all the attempts to make the light bulb. He said, I didn't fail 10,000 times. I learned 10,000 ways not to make a light bulb. It's in perspective, isn't it? Anybody ever went hunting and not kill anything? Anybody ever went fishing and not caught something? I remember one time Steve Smith didn't catch anything, but, um, but he's went since then. And I was a witness when he didn't catch anything, and I was a witness the other day when he just slam wore me out. Ray, you ever went and not killed anything? More, yeah. They call it hunting and not killing nothing. But you went back, didn't you? Because it was the thrill of the hunt. We learn, don't we? We learn, but when we learn, we can go back to things that are right that we did wrong. We can correct some of those things and we still enjoy the ride. Does that make any sense? That we can learn from our experiences? And it doesn't have to be life-changing, life-ending, and we just throw the whole thing away. There's an order, he said. He said, I set in order many proverbs. What does that even mean? There's an order in learning. I'm not, I'm not a rocket scientist by any stretch of the imagination. I've read and I've learned enough. I wanted to be an electrician in high school until I realized a two before wouldn't kill me unless somebody dropped it from a very high altitude. But uh, even 110 could kill me. And 277 could really light you up. I found that out later on. 14,400, working off a lot. And I, I realized real quick, you know what? I'm much less likely to die from framing and being a carpenter than I am electrician. But I did learn about ohms, amps, and volts. And there's a process that that flows. There's a process in water with hydrogen and oxygen in certain parts. There's, we even call... Our, our DNA and genetics, our genes, building blocks. When a husband and wife come together and the gene pool comes together, listen, that's why there's some days you look at your children and they look like mama. And then you look another day and they look a little bit like daddy. And, and there's, the, there's a growth process that things are set in order. Listen, there's the process. 
Number one, of creation, it's about a Christian worldview that we've got to get straight in our mind. God created. Before we can get right with God on anything else in our, in our educational life, we've got to understand God created it all. He holds the schematics. In construction, if we couldn't figure out how something would fit, we would look down there on that little box on the bottom, we would call the architect, and if the architect couldn't figure it out, he'd call the engineer, and if they couldn't say it over the phone, eventually we'd have a powwow with the superintendent, the engineer, the architect, and we'd put all our heads together, and we would call them because they designed it. They're the ones who laid it all out. When we were building our last house in Alabama, in the kitchen it had an island. And so I was laying all, everything out and I had my tape measure and I was laying the island out for the cabinets and I pulled the tape this way and I pulled the tape this way and it being an island, it had a 45 degree angle in the island. Becky will remember, I, I literally wore a bald spot on my head, scratching my head because I couldn't... And, and then I thought, well, I, the, it's not big enough in one way, and it's not, the angles are not right. And so I must have shortened this outer wall, and I kept looking for where I would messed up. I, I, the, the, the inner wall with the stairwell, I must have moved it, or the outer wall, I didn't set it back, but everything else seems to work. And finally, I come across something, and I looked on the bottom of those prints. I called the architect. Of these prints we'd bought, I said, listen, I bought these prints, laying out the island, here's the deal. And I don't want to be arrogant. I've looked and I've pulled and I've looked for everywhere I've messed up. I said, but I believe your prints are wrong. I said, oh no, I, we've sold 100 prints, blah, blah, blah. I said, I need you to look at it. All right, we'll get back with you, whatever. I said, well, I'm, I'm at the point. That afternoon or the next day, I get a phone call that says, uh, uh, Mr. Brady, it wasn't, oh uh, yeah, Mr. Brady, it's, uh, no, it was real humble. I said, Mr. Brady, you're right. Our plans are wrong. The, the dimensions for this island have got to be changed to this, and we're going to send you, we're going to fact, give us facts, number, we're going to fact you a corrected version. We appreciate you. And, you know, I made a funny joke. I said, well, I need a, I need a reduction on the cost of these blueprints because I just fixed your air something like that, and they laughed and hung up. Um, but here's the deal. The architect was wrong. You ever been wrong? Me and Mike's been wrong. He agreed. Well, you ever been wrong? You ever had to look at your child and say, I was wrong? I want you to understand There'll never be a, be a time, there never has been a time that you'll ever look at God and God will have to say, I was wrong. His prints are perfect for your life. Every single, listen, on blueprints, you flip a page. You know what my favorite page of blueprint is? You never guess. If you ever seen blueprints, there's the outside view on the front, right? You got a northern elevation, a southern elevation, western elevation, an eastern elevation. You got all that. Then you got the floor plan. And it shows you exactly how this works out. And then you got mechanical pages. But you know what my favorite page is? The detail page. The detail page zooms in. And it shows you the intricate part of maybe 
way a piece of trim is supposed to look or the way this outline of the corner, if it had quoins on it, the way the fascia board, everything's supposed to look exactly. And it's a real up close. Well, I want to tell you, even down to the most minute detail, God has a plan for your life. Learn it. Learn from your experiences. There's an order. Creation, corruption, man corrupted it. Christ came to redeem it. And through confession, through our repentance of sin, by the power of the blood of Jesus Christ, we can be changed. And if you think you're getting to heaven any way but that way, you are wrong. If you think you can deny the creation, the rest of it's out of place. If you think you can de deny uh, uh, the unequivocal answer that all things are corrupted in Adam and that all men sin, and let me, let me put it in the 21st century, all men, women, boys, girls, all human beings sin, all of us, that Christ is the only one who can do anything about it who's ever lived without sin, died for all sin, buried in a tomb and resurrected on the third day. He's the only one. Praise be to his name. There's an order, he said. But then, not only lessons in wisdom and order, but lessons in grace and truth. Look in verse 10. The preacher sought to find out acceptable words and that which was written was upright, even words of truth. The words of the wise are as goads or prods and as nails fastened by the masters of assemblies which are given from one shepherd, from God. That's the inspiration verse. Listen, lessons in grace and truth. First of all, you notice in verse 10, he said, the preacher sought to find out acceptable words. This word acceptable literally means delightful, beautiful, fragrant words. As a bouquet of most beautiful flowers, those were the words he sought. Words of words that are grace-filled. In our life, and this is another one of them things, if I could look back, I would look back and say, you know, God's holiness is true. But it's not going to benefit me or anybody else to be legalistic about it and to be harsh. Grace-filled instruction. Do you know the New Testament teaches us how to do discipline in the body of Christ? Where is it found? Anybody know? Matthew 18. Matthew 18, Galatians, it teaches us. Teaches us what to do. And do you know why we're to do church discipline? Get rid of them bad ones. Get rid of the wood. Nope. Restoration. It's not about trying to be harsh and to be mean and to embarrass and to call out. It's not what it's about. Why? Let me, let me, let me put it in real good perspective. Parents, when the kids are little, why do you tell them to stay away from the pool without you there? Why do you tell them don't go close to the stove when it's on? Why do you tell your kids to hold your hand 
when you're walking down a sidewalk with cars. Why? Why do you, why do you tell them all that? To do what? Protect them. Now, let me ask you something. Why do we get mad at God when he gives us correction? And why do we get mad at our brothers and sisters in Christ when they try to lovingly encourage us to get away from that which could cause damage? Grace-filled instruction means it's loving. Do you love people when you tell them that? Or do you love your kids when you tell them that? Let me ask you that. Well, if, if we're the body of Christ and we are brothers and sisters in Christ, when you get upset because something didn't go right and the preacher had a typo in his PowerPoint presentation and he called Noah Jonah for the umpteenth time and Ephesians, Ecclesiastes, all them e-books, he's got them all mixed up and you get mad, you got to make a point of hammering him and preacher, you got to make a point of trying to call somebody out and is it for encouragement and edification in a loving, restoring way or is it to try to prove you're right and they're wrong? He said, find out acceptable words. And, and can, what did your mama always tell you? And daddies didn't tell us this because our mamas had to tell our daddies. If you don't have something good to say, put it on Twitter. <laughs> uh, that's where we're living now. Everybody can hide behind their, their smartphone and they can quickly just put on there real quick how wrong everybody else is and how everyone else is dim-witted they're not very bright because they don't think like them he said I sought out acceptable words tell me an acceptable word in correction tell me a way that you can lift someone else even in the secular world when I work for the government now, I don't believe there's a secular world when you're a Christian. I just don't know another word. Everything you do, if it's not church life, whatever your vocation is, it's still not secular if you're saved. You do your work as unto the Lord. But working for the government, we would go through all them classes. They, good grief, they'd class you to death. You had to go through all this stuff, all this stuff. I mean, three ring binders, you know, big as the... Gutenberg Bible, all these policies and procedures and all that. Well, one thing that I took away, the one real thing that I took away from all that was once I went into key leadership, they said, anytime you sit down, you do job interviews or you have to write someone up for something, you document, document, document. But when you do it, you always start it off with some kind of praise and you end it with praise. Sandwich criticism with praise. You say, well, there's nothing to praise them. Then why are they working for you? There is something, listen, there's always something you can find good. If you look, be loving. 
Be loving, be edifying, lifting up, building up to restore. We need to be reaching out. These pews or or, or chairs are hungering. It's not going to do us to get mad and, and to shout. You need to get back to church, get right with God. Listen, I know that. They know that. What they need to hear is we love you and we miss you. And the Lord wants you to be thriving in an accountability group where you can be ministered to and you can minister to others. Restoring. Grace-filled example. How how can you be grace-filled? Anyone ever had to say, I'm sorry? Besides me, you ever ever had to say, "I, I apologize? then you know what it feels like to want someone to forgive you. Then if we're going to live a grace-filled example, we'll forgive others. Do you know we call it the Lord's Prayer? Is in Matthew, is that the Lord's Prayer? You know that we, we just recite out of just somehow we think God's going to be on our side and we're going to whip everybody on the football field? If we recite the Lord's Prayer, is that the Lord's Prayer? No, sir. You don't know why? Because there was never a day, never a second where Jesus said, forgive me of my sins. Forgive me of my trespasses, even as I forgive those who trespass against me. That's not the Lord's prayer. It's our prayer. They said, teach us how to pray. He said, okay, pray like this. It's our prayer. We pray that prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed. Think about it. If you're going to quote it, if you're going to recite it, then mean it. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But that little part right there, forgive us of our trespasses even as we forgive those who trespass against us. He's saying be grace-filled, forgiving, encouraging, Empower, you can empower someone's life just by giving a grace-filled example. Senior adults, make a point of making relationship with young people and say, you know what, life is really hard. I was actually, believe it or not, 16 one time. And let me tell you what I went through in my life. And you, and listen, those who are my age and above, in a lot of ways, they got a lot rougher than we had it, don't they? We didn't have to worry about Twitter and, and Facebook and all, all that. We didn't have to worry about all that. Well, I don't know if I even knew what a Muslim was when I was in high school. I had no idea. I thought we just fought Russians. That's the only thing we, you know, they were the only evil empire then. And then I learned there's an evil axis. And then we hear, you know, well, during my, senior, uh, my high school year, they took the hostages in Iran for 444 days. Till that great president, Ronald Reagan, they didn't even let him get down Pennsylvania Avenue good after he was being uh, uh, sworn in and inaugurated. And they said, we might ought to turn these old boys loose. <laughs> they got a cowboy that's the president now. empowering we could empower the next generation if we would simply admit we don't have all the answers right that's true 
grace-filled example, but I, there's got to be a balance. And so he not only fought, found out acceptable words here in verse 10, but notice what he said in verse 11. The words of the wise are as goads or prods. It literally, farmers, it's literally like a cattle prod to, to move, it's to prod them along. There's a man, there was an old judge in the Old Testament who killed a bunch of men with an ox goad. You remember who that judge was? Come on, he's a cool dude. Who? Shamgar. And Shamgar killed him with an ox goad. That just sounds bad. You know, that's like, I mean, that's like Bruce Willis stuff. I mean, Shamgar with an ox goad. Look it up. It's in Judges, I believe. But here's the deal. He said, the words of the wise are as prods and as nails fastened by the masters of assemblies which are given from one shepherd. You see, it's not just about being grace-filled in our instruction, but it's about life-changing inspiration. The Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. And in that life-changing inspiration, we must make the observation that truth is objective and not subjective. Now, what does that mean? He said it is as a prod, prodding us alone because it is revealing. You see, there's not one truth for Mike and one truth for me. There's not one truth for John and, and one truth for Marilyn. There's not one truth for women and one truth for men. Amen? There's not one truth for the 19th century and one truth for the 21st century. What was good and right and truthful for Solomon was for Peter, was for the early church, was for the dark ages, what is still truth today. It is, abs it is absolute, it is objective. That means when God shoots straight, it hits all. Because he's not a respecter of persons. You know what we always like to say? Yeah, but this is my situation. We don't believe in situational ethics. We believe God's ethic applies to all. And so in the fact that it's objective, it is prodding us because I'm going to tell you sometimes, I'm like reading Proverbs. Y'all ever read Proverbs? It's not too far before this one. Y'all try it. It's really cool. Until you get to the part you're just flying along. Man, this is good stuff. Hey, man, it's telling me about these. and uh, uh, Man, being uh, old contentious women's like a leaking roof. And boy, I mean, it's just hammering along. Then all of a sudden, it shoots you right between the eyes. And God shoots with both barrels. Because Proverbs, you will not, I promise you, read it. But you won't get far till you'll want to throw it. Because it digs into the deep hidden recesses of our life and it reveals and it prods us with truth that is life changing. You ever done that? You ever read a scripture? Instead of saying, amen, you said, oh me. I'm as the publican, oh God, I'm broken and undone. You are as Jeremiah, as, as a broken and empty vessel that can hold no water. It is prodding with life-changing 
inspiration, but then not just objective truth, absolute truth, nails that are fastened by the masters of assemblies, which are given from one shepherd. Y'all know I like old cars and been trying to work on one for a long time. And I remember when I first, I said, I'm going to take this thing all the way off the frame. And so the first thing to do was to take the bolts that bolted the body to the frame. And the very first one, I went to pulling and prodding, uh, pulling and tugging and spraying stuff on it, loosen up. And I reared back and I got me a good leg hold and I got me a cheater stick. And I went to pull that thing and I heard it creak one time. I said, oh, I'm almost there. And then all of a sudden it gave way. Except the head was in my ratchet and the rest of it was still in there. It had broke. It was so fastened holding it on. It rusted into place. I'm going to tell you, I learned when I first started shooting guns and putting optics on a gun. Timmy, Tommy, you'll appreciate this. I, I put a scope on a gun and I went out, you know, and I shot, killed a few deer and then I went out and one day I shot and I was like, how did I miss? How in the world could I miss? This gun is dead on it, drive nails. And then all of a sudden I was looking and I touched the scope and I could feel a little vibration. I said, what in the world? After a repetitive shoot, I mean, it's an explosion every time you pull the trigger. And I talked to somebody and this older gentleman who had hunted a long time said, oh, I know the problem. You didn't put any Loctite on them screws, did you? I said, what are you talking about? Well, you put it in there to keep it from turning loose. You put just a little drop of Loctite when you type, and that scope will, will not be off. It, it won't get loose. It won't vibrate. It will stay where it's supposed to be. Listen, absolute truth. God pours into our life the truth that is his words, and it's absolute. And it does not change with who you're dating. It does not change in what you're wanting. It does not change with your age or what day it is. It, cha it changes not. It is securing Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And it is reviving us when we realize that it's absolute. He said that it says nails, nailing it down by the masters of assemblies, but really it's given by one shepherd, God. Now let me finish. There's lessons in wisdom and order, lessons in grace and truth, and they must be balanced. But there's this lessons in balance. He said in verse 12, And further by these, my son, be admonished. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. Lewis Sperry Schaefer said, Gentlemen, do not give them something to do. Give them something to believe. I've heard it said the Catholics will pray you to death and the Baptists will work you to death. There's a lot of truth to that. Sign up for a cleanup, work up, be on this team. We pleading and begging, please come help the nursery. We do. That's ministry. We've got to refocus. But we cannot give the idea that if we go to enough, I believe Sunday school is important. I believe coming together in worship, I think some of the sweetest times is Wednesday night prayer meeting. I think it's, in, well, let me just say, it's important to me. I need it. I need that time. 
But I cannot give the idea that going to church, being part of a group, is somehow going to make you part of the body of Christ. But I do believe if you're part of the body of Christ, you'll, uh, if you are born again, then you'll want to be with the body of Christ. We need to give them something to believe. He said, and further by these, my son, be admonished. He's speaking with strong words. He said, listen to me. Of making many books, there is no end. You ever went into a really, 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 really big library? I imagine I hadn't been to it, but uh, the library at Georgia Southern is probably pretty good size. Library at the University of Georgia, probably pretty good size. You go into these big, the, the America's Library in Washington, Library of Congress, it's got anything and everything you could ever imagine. And they make movies in it, it's so big. Books, they've even got a copy, uh, one of the four existing copies of the Gutenberg Bible, the first Bible printed in English. Books on everything. Everything. You can Google anything. Literally. Anything. But he's saying, if you spend all your time with that, you're going to miss who God really is. There's got to be a balance in learning. He's saying, don't learn. But listen, if you spend all your time, one of the greatest things I can remember when I started at Luther Rice Seminary, in the front of the catalog, as it was giving us uh, our, our conduct, order of conduct as a student, it says never ever will we encourage playing devil's advocate. In other words, in the middle of, of class when there is debate and discussion, no one will ever take the devil's side. You say, oh, come on, that's just a, a metaphor. No, it's not. What we're saying is you don't have to look at just counterfeits all day to know the truth. You need to know the truth so you'll know the counterfeits. If you spend all your time reading Stephen Hawking and Carl Sagan and Nitschke and all the other former and current great scientists of the world, they'll have you believing as they spouted all week on Shark Week that it's been millions and billions of years and that the sharks and everything else just slowly evolved and that man uh, 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 evolving with it and they got it all off of one little island with one man looking at puffins, penguins and turtles. And occasionally a shark would swing by. And he sat down and wrote his origin of species. But way before Darwin ever was, God is. In the beginning, God. There must be a balance in learning. Parents, you're going to teach your kids. Now, I'm not preaching tonight, so y'all, I'm, I'm almost done. Listen to me. We're going to teach them, did you do your homework? Did you read your AR points? Did you get all this stuff? Did you do this? Did you do that? Keep your GPA up. And I'm going to tell you now, that is important. It's real important when it comes to how much money you're going to get toward college. It's real important. But with the most grace and love I can share with you today, when's the last time did you look at your child and say, when's the last time did you, you read your Bible? Does that matter to you, Dad? Or does it matter that they just know algebra real well? 
Does it matter how long they practice their sport or how much time they have spent on their knees praying? Because what I heard from these adults I talked to this morning, they didn't say, I wish I'd played more sports. I wish I'd went hunting more. I wish I'd took more vacation. No! They said, I wish I would have walked with the Lord more. So as they come with a song, there must be a balance in learning. Be careful. Just be careful. You can read other things. I, I, I love to read commentaries, but can I tell you something? A commentary helps me understand the Bible in some ways, but it never, never takes the place of the Bible. The Bible will clarify other things if we'll read it, right? What's the final authority in your life? And you know, even to the point that they'll call it the, the, the uh, gun owner's Bible or the fishing Bible, this Bible. You know what Bible means? Holy book. There's only one. And so there must be a care in learning, but a balance in living. We need to be guarded. Guard yourself, church. Balanced. Learning is a process. Lord, teach me how to pray. Lord, increase my faith. Lord, show me your glory. Lord, may I learn, may I grow, may I be not just a good teacher, but a good learner. May I be a good witness. Lord, may I trust you today. I've seen that my life doesn't measure up. I will never earn my way to glory, and I need Jesus to come into my life and save me. Today, as they play a hymn of invitation, will you come and say, Lord, may I be willing to learn to trust you more. Stand and come. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. That you'll be that dad, be that mom. Be that teacher God's made you be.